Welcome to Control the Controllables. My name is John McGahan from Max Tennis Academy in Ireland, and I'm here with my co-host, Dan Kiernan from Soto Tennis in Spain. Together we have created a podcast, bringing some of the top tennis athletes and tennis coaches from across the globe together. We hope you enjoy our next episode. Welcome to episode 44 of Control the Controllables. Today we have Mark Bullock. Mark has done an inspirational job over the last 20 or so years. Uh, Firstly, he worked in wheelchair tennis at the International Tennis Federation. And over the last few years, he's turned his hand to more partially impaired or blind tennis, where he's working with the athletes to, to develop that sport and, and bring that sport further on in Britain and then also in the world as he did with wheelchair tennis. Um, a fantastic story, some, some amazing insights, you know, how, how learning to coach with people that do have disabilities can, can also help us as tennis coaches working with able, able-bodied tennis players is, is one of my big takeaways um, his the skills that you pick up, the creativity, the patience, the connections, all of those things. Um, I did listen to Mark, and some of you might have heard Mark on Chris Souter's Tennis Journal, which is another fantastic podcast. Um, so we didn't go into Mark's tennis life growing up uh, because this was already discussed. So if you are interested in how how Mark grew up in tennis then please do find that episode on Chris Suda's Tennis Journal. Um, and then, like I say, we've skipped past that part and gone more into, into his working life and how he got into, into the sport uh, at, a, at a coaching level. Um, without any further ado, I'm going to pass you over to Mark Bullock. So, Mark Bullock, a big welcome to Control the Controllables. Thanks for joining us. No, thanks very much. Uh, thank, thanks for the invitation. No, it's it's great to have you. And just and for our listeners, Mark, you know we've we've kind of been on a bit of a journey the last three or four months, and we're trying to give all the different lenses of the world of tennis, and you know going into many different aspects. And for for those listening, Mark spent a lot of his working coaching career first of all working at the ITF, working with wheelchair tennis and working to a very high level in, in, on that side of the game. And then recent years, he's, he's turned in, in his hand to blind tennis and, and other sports a little bit with it being an inclusive sports development advisor. So there's some fascinating bits that we're going to get to, Mark, but uh, it's, it's great to have your insights from, from the different side of tennis. Yeah. No, 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 I look, look forward to chatting it through with you. And, and to, in terms of it, everyone we've spoke to, we can't really start a conversation without talking about the current times and, and the effect it's maybe had on you personally, the effect it's had on, on your role and, and, and the people that you are working with. How, how's that been and how have you got through it all? Yeah, I, I, on, in many respects, it's been very challenging, uh, the sort of... The face-to-face delivery sort of pretty much stopped over, overnight. A few my contracts dried up, but we tried to be as creative as possible and took loads of stuff online. So I got a call from a wheelchair player who had set up a little group of themselves of players, done one session and said, "Would I coach it?" I'm like, "Well, I think I could do a couple of sessions online." Yeah. And we're now in week twelve, I think, and that's worked much better than we expected, and we'd have been able to do more. And then I experimented with coaching a, a totally blind player, say doing some tennis related skills with a totally blind player online. That we found out that that could work. Um, and recently we've done the first group uh, blind and party sighted sessions through Zoom. Uh, so uh, yeah, I've learned loads, done some coach education online as well for Tennis Island. Um, and also been on the receiving end of some LTA mentoring training online. So that was really good as well to be on the receiving end of, yeah. of how a course could, or stuff could be delivered online. So, so learned a load. So yeah, it's been interesting, challenging. And, and now we're in that phase of, of getting back onto court. Uh, but that's challenging for some of the groups that we work with because 
some have got underlying health conditions, the um, guiding of, of the, the guidance around guiding people is essentially that at the moment that's very unclear or you shouldn't guide someone yeah. who's blind or partially sighted. So we're looking at different ways of delivering even as we come out of, of this situation. Um, and we're having a debate around the wheelchair sessions. Uh, how long do we keep going with the online to complement what we're doing on court? And I think we're coming to that conclusion that we'll, we'll, we'll do a blended approach. Okay. Um, yeah, so learn a lot. Unbelievable. I, 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 one of the things I try and, try and do, Mark, is I try and listen to these podcasts as if I'm listening. And I, and I try and think about what the questions that are going through people's heads are. And yep. I guarantee someone's listening going, how do you coach, firstly, a blind player, which we'll get to later on in the podcast, but how do you coach a blind player via online learning? Yeah, well, uh, we all learn it. And, you know, I, I've learned a lot by um, working with blind and partially sighted people. And I was, I was lucky in my first job um, back in the early 90s when we first met, I shared an office with a guy who was, was blind. Right. I learned a lot from him. And the totally blind players get up to three bounces. But in a, in a Zoom context, I, I would obviously be on Zoom and I'd get the player to show me his space so his lounge with his camera so i could see if there were any hazards um and then it set the camera up uh, and if i saw him veering too close to a piece of furniture i'd call him back yeah. um so similar to the coaching that we do live we we agree a system um so with this particular player we use the clock so if he's facing me it's 12 o'clock and then six o'clock behind him. Um, so I can then use those clock face instructions to make sure he's facing the right direction. And yeah, we just, and it was a real journey for me and learning what we could do. Um, so I, I, for example, tracking is important in blind tennis. So I would, through Zoom, I would shake the ball, which would be the signal to start an activity, running on the spot maybe as a warm up. Yeah. and shake it again, he would stop. And then we explored, so a lot of it was around coordination, balancing the ball on your racket, standing on one leg, going down on one knee, coming back up again, and then uh, rallying against his, in this case, he was rallying against his door. Yeah. And then I would say, that, and then we would get into a bit of target practice, perhaps around the serve. So I'd say to the player, do you know where your jacket is on the back of your door? Yep, okay, well, so try and hit it. Yep, and then you know where your door handle is. Yep, try and hit it. And we just started playing with these ideas. And the sessions were about half an hour, thirty-five minutes. Yeah. And they worked really well. And so a lot of it was around the social engagement, the connection with tennis. But they did work much better than than I expected. And we were we were able to progress them. We did more than I expected. And then and then we've moved on to doing some some group sessions as well which when I was first asked, I said, I'm not sure I could deliver a group session, but I'm happy to do an individual. Yeah. But then slowly, as we learned more of the content, but also, I guess, in a way, more importantly, the safety. Yeah. Um, so when I do a group session, I just make sure I've got a second set of eyes. So I'm delivering. Yeah. And, and then we have a second person just w watching to make so that if someone does have an accident, we can we see it straight away. Um, but uh, yeah, so some real, and some learnings that we'll take back onto the court as well. Um, Has it been done before? I, I, like, is that if we talk about in the UK, if we talk about blind tennis in the UK, before you started, is there a system in place where somebody could mentor you into it? Are you the first one? I, I think we're the first right. um, to have done, uh, not, not the first to have done blind tennis, although we, it's, blind tennis started in Japan, and I, with my friends and colleagues who I spoke about earlier, we did experiment with blind tennis in Nottingham in the early 90s, yeah. um, more around skills and activities, but certainly the, the work we've done on Zoom, we think it's a world first. Yeah. Um, 
I don't know for sure. There may be other people who have, who have, have tried it. Certainly had people contact me and um, uh, a bit like you've done, ask questions as to how we've done it. Yeah. Um, so I think it, it will become more common. Um, but yeah, I think uh, it's possibly a first. Um, but I, I, w I wouldn't like to, to claim it without, there might be someone out there who's done it as well. Yeah, and, and it, can you explain to the listeners, how do they compete? Yeah, so in a, in a competitive situation, they have, there are different levels of site category. Yeah. Um, B1 is totally blind, and they play on a, on a smaller court in the service boxes with tactile lines. Yeah. And the totally blind get up, up to three bounces. Yeah. And the ball is um, a foam ball with a table tennis ball inside it with ball bearings. Okay. So, so it, it, it rattles a little bit in the air, but makes the most noise on the bounce. Okay. And then, without going into too much detail, the partially sighted play on an orange court, okay. um, and they get uh, three, two, or one bounce, depending on their level of sight loss. Okay. So if a sighted player joins in, so if I join in on the sessions, I play off one. Um, and that, that's another thing I love about tennis generally, is the inclusive nature of it. A sighted player can play against a visually impaired player using the audible ball, um, and it works. I mean, it's, they handicap tennis. I remember growing up in my local club, that was, they actually had a, a Sunday afternoon or whatever it was, and it was, you'd start off 30 love down, or you'd start off, but this is, this is truly going right. You can't see very well, you can. So, so you get this amount of bounces and you get this amount of bounces and, and you can still have a fair game. That's in, it's incredible. Yeah, and, and, and I think, you know, wheelchair tennis works in the same way. You can play one up, one down or, you know, and I, I, I practiced with Alfie Hewitt quite a lot. Yeah. Um, and that's what I love about it. You know, I'm married to a wheelchair user. We can play doubles together. Yeah. Um, tennis works really well from an inclusive point of view. And I... I I've really enjoyed coaching, but also joining in with, with the blind players because it's a bit like playing touch tennis yeah. uh, with a foam ball. Um, and I, I can come away feeling like I've had a workout. Uh, yeah. Um, so, yeah, it works really well. Um, so you, you, mentioned, you mentioned your wife there. Is, I guess I, what I'm going to do, I think, Mark, I'm going to put a shout out to Chris Souter and his and his fantastic podcast that he does, um, you know, and for for anyone listening, because I know that you were on there and I listened to you on there. And I'm going to fast forward a bit through your upbringing, because I, I, you've talked about it on there. People that are really interested in in markets, Chris Souter's diary entry entry diaries or i'll say it and I'll, I'll make sure that i mention it at the end of the at the end of the podcast for people so i'm going to kind of fast forward a bit to how you got into wheelchair tennis was that linked to your wife no no we i met my wife through wheelchair tennis she's on the tour in brazil oh she's, she's brazilian so we we met through wheelchair tennis um, my my journey started into wheelchair tennis where i was working in nottingham and I'd done a master's at Loughborough University and one of my tutors had seen some of the work that we got published in the LTA Coaches and Coaching magazine as it was then. Yeah. And we'd literally been into four schools, done a little bit of work with the vision impaired, a little bit of work with physical disability, um, the deaf and learning disability. And we just wrote up a very basic article of, of what we'd done. But my tutor phoned me and said, we've got a wheelchair tennis player coming to Loughborough University. First one, not quite sure how to approach this. We see you've done a little bit of disability. And I'm like, well, it is a little bit of disability. So this, this particular player, uh, Will Behenna, um, he played a little bit on campus at the university. Yep. And then he came up to Nottingham once a week for sessions with me. I've spoken to him recently and he knew how to move his chair but not how to hit a tennis ball. Hopefully I knew how to hit a tennis ball but had no idea how to move a chair 
and we spent a lot of time asking each other questions to to solve the, the, the problems and, and at that point I'd hardly seen any wheelchair tennis at all so I didn't really have a any kind of benchmark to work to I'd watched a short exhibition at the 91 Fed Cup yeah um, so I'd watched about 20 minutes yeah. <laughs> and, and there was no resources to refer to so it was just a case of asking Will lots of questions from his experiences of watching other players. And then I tried to go to a couple of tournaments and watch the yeah. British players as they were then and, and go on a learning curve. Mm. Um, and how different is it coaching a wheelchair tennis player to an able-bodied tennis player? Uh, I, I, I don't, I, I see they're very similar. In, 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 in the way that I would approach it. I, I, whoever I coach, I tend to ask a lot of questions because that's my, my background. Um, and th there are little things that are nuances, the movement patterns are different. Yeah. Wheelchair players, it's good to have a, a little understanding of how different impairments and disabilities are, will impact on what players um, can do. But generally the, 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 the principles are the same. and I. Uh, exploring what the player wants to do, what their aspirations are, and then and then work with it. And I, I've had an interesting ex experience over the last three or four years since I left the International Tennis Federation, where I was doing predominantly disability tennis and nothing else. Mm -hmm. And I got asked to coach non-disabled people by a friend. Right. And I was like, oh, this is taking me out of my comfort zone. So what would I do? So what did I do? I spent a little time working alongside him. Yeah. I went online and just made sure that I was still current. Yeah. And 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 fell into it. And that would be my sort of advice or guidance to anyone who's thinking about coaching disabled players is yeah. not to have any apprehensions. You know, you can Google a few things, you ask the player, you can mm -hmm. ask another coach that's working in a similar area and, and just go for it. Um, so yeah, and I think coaching blind tennis is probably in some ways more different. Mm. You know, court size are different, the ball is different. Going on an exploratory journey with the player um, and working out how how we can do things. And I I, you know, I, I took some of Louis Caillet's ideas about using ropes, which he uses in doubles, yeah. with a, using those with a totally blind player to explain court angles and, and and whatever so yeah. you know I, I'm at one end of a rope and the players at the other end of the rope yeah. and I'm moving and and then she's using the rope to, to work out the court angles and where the ball could go or, or where she, her, her options yeah, yeah so yeah I think you you certainly I think some coaches are guilty of being lazy when they coach able-bodied players you know uh, first to 11 yeah okay great yeah warm your serves up I guess there's there's no danger of that coaching a blind player huh? you can't be no no you, uh, your communication skills really improve yeah because um, if you're coaching a deaf player for example you have to be very visual yeah in your explanations and and and, and my sign language isn't great I've learned a little bit but you can mime and get or write things down get your message across and then coaching especially coaching the b1 the totally blind players you, you have to be very descriptive yeah and you know i still make mistakes or i'm not as descriptive as i should be and, and they'll very quickly tell me that i they don't know what they're supposed to be doing um but you you find a way and then you know going back to the on taking it online you have to be even more descriptive because you, you haven't got the option to perhaps walk up to someone and, and say, can I take your elbow and move them yeah. you know, or guide them? Yeah. Um, you, you, you've got to be really descriptive in your language. So I think, yeah, you learn lots. And with the wheelchair players, if someone's got trunk function or not trunk function, that Im impacts a little bit on, on what they're able to do. So it makes you think a little bit. Um, so, yeah, I think... Coaching disabled people makes you a real problem-solving coach, Absolutely. and you can't be. So it's difficult to be lazy because you're always thinking. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, about 
how a drill might work or how it, you know, and I still do it. I'll set things up that don't work and you just rewind. Yeah. 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 Uh, and, and sometimes I, I, I try and stretch the players a little bit and it doesn't always work out. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, you, you just, I, I guess you learn to adapt and, yeah, I'm very, very keen to challenge myself, I guess. And when I, now when, when we're hopefully back to normal, I have an assistant coach who's got a learning disability, um, coaching the visually impaired players. And that's been a really, that's been a really interesting experience as well to work as I'm learning more about um, her delivery yeah. um, and how to communicate. So, yeah. My, my view is anyone can play tennis and anything's possible. Yeah, I just honestly, it's so inspirational. And, and I've been, you've always, you know, I touched base with you a few weeks ago. I wanted to get you on really badly because, you know, we had a conversation last year at Wimbledon. And I genuinely left that conversation feeling really inspired, really like, wow, it's just, it's incredible. You know, it, it really is incredible what you're doing, but also what these players are doing. And, and I, do, I do think when we talk about people going into tennis coaching, you know, I'm a big believer of this, that players going into tennis coaching, if they've played to a high level, should spend four or five years just working with lots and lots of different people. And, yeah. and if that could extend to working with disabled people or imagine imagine somebody coming off the tour saying i want to be a coach go and spend two weeks working with with a blind player with mark and, and this blind player it would be incredible for their learning you know yeah. for their ability like you said a problem solve to to you know I'm a, again i'm a big believer in building connections with people but the, the the connection that you must have to build when you're in that environment you know to to, to get things forward um, it, it's it, if I was in charge of coach education, I, I genuinely think I would put that module in there because you know it's got to be good for your development as a coach. And I think it's coming. And uh, Sven Grunefeld, uh, who's coached many of the top players in the world, uh, most recently Sharapova, he he worked with Esther Vigier for three years, um, and it's interesting to hear his reflections of yeah of of, of, of working with a with a wheelchair player. And I, I think. Yeah, I think more and more coaches are are, are showing an interest in 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 this area. I mean, when I first got involved in the early nineties, there were there were very few of us. Yeah. Now, yeah, there's a lot of, a lot of interest, and I think, um, yeah, what I like, you really build up a rapport with the players. It's a real community, and COVID has proved that the the sessions. The, the visually impaired here or the blind sessions, B1 sessions that we did on a Wednesday evening, for example, went online as a Zoom call straight away as a community. We didn't actually introduce any tennis for several weeks. Okay. But you've really got a rapport there. And I think you build up a relationship with any player, but I think that's something I take away is you, you, you really, you, you build up a relationship with a player. If you're, if you're coaching someone that is totally blind, there's got to be a level of trust there when you're asking them to do something. Absolutely, both ways. So, 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 yeah, we all, in terms of the technical side of the sport, but also connectivity with with people. Yeah, um, yeah, and that's something I really enjoy. Yeah. No, it's fantastic. If I take you back a little bit, Mark, to obviously working for the ITF, um, International Tennis Federation. What was your role there? And I guess what were some of the things that you achieved with wheelchair tennis when you were when you were in that role? Yeah, well, I, I did sort of uh, two roles. Uh, the first sort of half of the time I was there, I, I was the wheelchair tennis development officer. Yeah. Um, so that was very much a track-suited role, like traveling all over the world, which was really interesting, exciting, developing the sport, going into new countries, um, and that, that, that's the bit I, you know. I really enjoyed and then the second period there I was the wheelchair tennis manager um, so overseeing the whole department which included the development but also the tour the Paralympics classification and, and all of those elements um, and a, you know, 
I think the bit I enjoyed out of that was working with the Grand Slams yeah. and seeing that evolution of, of, of the sport. Um, now when I first joined the ITF in 2001, the Australian Open was the only slam yeah. to have a wheelchair event. And then over that period of time, uh, the others came in. And, and then since I left the ITF, all four Grand Slams are very similar they all have men women and quads they all do singles and doubles and it was really exciting to see that evolution and, and be involved in some of the negotiations to get it to where it was yeah. um uh, but i think i think my fondest memories of my time at the itf are around the development work yeah. um one of the most exciting projects was working with a, a charity called motivation to develop a low-cost okay. sports wheelchair that enabled more people to be able to play because um, when, I, when I first joined we were donating the odd second-hand wheelchair to a developing country every now and then yeah. um, but the low-cost wheelchair allowed us to put sort of 10 or 15 wheelchairs into a, a yeah. country and I think that that's made a, a huge difference and is it a is it a sport that's becoming more and more popular? Is, is wheelchair tennis becoming more and more popular? I, I, yeah, I think so, yeah. The awareness is going up. I think um, the work that the ITF did and continue to do, uh, they've led the way as a, an international federation in embracing the wheelchair element of the sport. They were the first to do it and continue to lead the way. Um, and then linked to that, the Grand Slams coming on board. I mean, just yeah it lifted the profile enormously um and of course the paralympic games and the increasing profile of of the games has has brought wheelchair tennis along uh, along with it yeah i know i always say in the early 90s when i said i coach wheelchair tennis i always had to have a paragraph ready to explain what it was yeah yeah now when i talk about wheelchair tennis everyone seems to know what it is most people know there's a second bounce yeah so yeah big, yeah big change yeah because that would be that would be something that would be on my mind as well of you know how what challenges have you gone through on on that side of things and i mean there was the most recent one you know i guess to go back a step you know what challenges have you been through and if we talk about the, the respect maybe level that people have got for that sport, you know, if, if someone who's, who's driving that forward, you know, is it how, how it's looked at? And, and most recently, obviously, there was the Dylan Alcott who came out and spoke very clearly, you know, very well about the US Open. You know, this is going to happen, but we're, you know, it's subtle. It's subtle, but it's not putting them in the, in the, in the right light. You must have gone through a few challenges like that, I would imagine. Yeah, I th and I think at different phases uh, and I continue uh, the work that I do now is trying to encourage people to be more inclusive yeah um, uh, and that's what I've enjoyed throughout my career I guess is just being at the forefront of of trying to nudge people along yeah um, and, and take them on a journey um, and encourage whoever it is whether it be a grand spam or a local tennis club to be more inclusive yeah um, and it, I think in some respects it's got it's got easier. Yeah. You know, the, the the doors, but there are still little barriers there. And um, around COVID and, and and the vision impaired and blind players, they tended to play in indoors in their own hubs. Yeah. And uh, because um, the indoor venues aren't open yet, or they're about to be open. Um, we've been trying to work with with players to play at their local club or their local parks courts and just break some barriers down there give the players the confidence to approach the club and give the club the confidence to welcome in a, a vision impaired player or a wheelchair player um, and, yeah and yeah there's been always been challenges a, a, along the way and, and there's there still will be because I you know still like to see everything progress Absolutely. So you know, with the Grand Slams, you know the draw sizes are eight at the moment. You know, maybe in the future they'll be qualifying. Yeah. Um, so we'll always be 
pushing people along and nudging them. Yeah. But I, yeah, no, no, no. You know, I don't. It's just trying to take people on a journey, and uh, you know, when you see the top wheelchair players in the world play, it's top quality tennis. Yeah? And I think the spectators want to watch it, the media want to cover it, so um, it's a very high level. And if you watch a you know, totally blind player play, and when you see it for the first time, as I did when I first the first exhibition I saw in two thousand and seven. When the Japanese came over to London, I was like, wow, you know. And I was taken on a journey. Absolutely. Because I was a bit skeptical. I went to the demo and went, ah, okay, this yeah. works. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, I'd, I'd like to be part of the, of the journey. Um, Where does the visually impaired journey go next? Uh, I think it'll follow wheelchair tennis. I think uh, that there's only, there's a few national tournaments. There's there's been one international tournament for a few years, so there's there's a, a long way to go to start to develop a competitive structure that will come. There's quite a good competitive structure here in the UK, um, and, and I think it will follow a similar a, a similar journey. Um, and I think it'll be quicker because social media allows the it, the word to be spread uh, so much quicker than wheelchair tennis was, you know, in the. 80s 90s and even when i joined the itf we we didn't have the ability to to share stuff on social media yeah yeah um, so i think it will be, it will be quicker yeah um, so we'll, we'll see and and in terms of able-bodied tennis players we talk about there being 150 200 players males 200 females that make a living from the sport how many wheelchair players is it there is it their sole income and is there any visually impaired players that have that uh the, the easy one to answer visually impaired players is easy to answer no because there's no there's one international tournament a year there's no prize money at all at, at, at any level yeah um the wheelchair good question i think the number of players that that make a living or do it professionally is, is increasing yeah but it's probably still quite small. It's probably that cohort of players that play the Grand Slams, that top seven or eight. Yeah. Um, but equally, they wouldn't be able to do it, but this is where the Grand Slams have also been brilliant, without the prize money available from the Grand Slams, yes. wouldn't be possible. Um, and probably still not possible without support from federations. Yeah, so there, there needs to be a... to, to make a... You know, there's there's not a huge amount of money, but wheelchair tennis has gone on a, a, a you know incredible trajectory of, of of where that prize money has come from, yeah. and the support that the players receive. But yeah, it still needs to trickle down a little bit further, um, and that will be part of blind tennis's journey as well. I think as as it evolves, they'll you know at the moment there's no professional players at all. Yeah, and, and if we were to say what year, you know, because you were heavily involved, you've been heavily involved in this for a long time, what year was the no professional wheelchair players? So how quick, how quickly has it risen? Oh, good question. Um, I, I think the early 2000s, there was the emergence of a few professional players. When I, when I was coaching a Giant Mystery in the, in the 90s, early 90s there were 20 tournaments on the tour yeah. he was working part-time I was coaching him for free you know, um, which I you know best thing I ever did because that's how I, I got to learn uh, and I was I was on 20% of each prize money but I think I earned less than 100 quid so um, it's, it's come through and I think I think a watershed mid 2000s I think when when you know Wimbledon and, and Roland Garros came on board yes. and the US Open those three came quite quickly together yes. is when it, it helped but yeah I, I, I can't imagine I don't know for sure but I don't think anyone's making a fortune out of the sport by any means but they are um, you know the, the, the progression has been quite good and there's some higher profile players now, isn't it? I mean, we, we had Gordon Reed, 
we had Gordon on the on the podcast who was who was amazing and you know I've yeah. I've watched Gordon play and like I said to him he's he's the he's the Rafa he's got the Rafa of wheelchair tennis watching I couldn't it blew my mind the first time I saw him play I couldn't I couldn't believe the racket head speed that he got yeah uh, yeah. And then obviously Dylan Olcott seems to be a, a, a big personality who, who who seems to be making waves, you know, and obviously he's had a lot of success. So it, it, it once you start getting the these sort of high profile names, it, it definitely seems to be moving the sport forward. You know. Yeah, I think I think you know, and, and again that's where the, the grand slams have helped and you know, Dylan Dylan Olcott that you mentioned, the number one quad player in the world. Is um, he's a superstar in Australia, uh, and you know, probably through him the fi- the final couple of years ago the the quad final has has, has been played on on Rod Laver um, and televised, um, and, he, and he's a great personality. So that's all coming forward. And in, in this country, in the UK, you've got Gordon, very well known, Alfie Hewitt, uh, Lucy. These are names that people now know. Jordan Wiley. Yeah. Um, Andy Lapthorne, that they, you know, a, a bit like I said earlier, when I talk to people now within tennis, p- people know some of the players. Yeah. In the nineties, in the no, no idea, you know. Um, so it, it, there's been progression on on many fronts, and it's really good. And I think, as you say, I was. Um, you know, the racket head speed that Gordon gets, and I was with uh, Tommy Robredo, who's is a big fan of wheelchair tennis and a supporter. And he run for a while. He ran a tournament in Spain, and he was hitting with Stefan Houdet. Yeah. And I was behind Tommy taking photos, yeah. and he sort of looked at me and went, hmm, "I need to step up a little bit here, because uh, Stefan hits a pretty heavy ball." Um, and I watched Shingo play warm up with Kane Ishikori one time, thinking, wow, you know, he can hold his own. Now, clearly Kay could play in a way tactically that would he would win. But just sparring, Shingo was able to hold his own very easily against you know, some of the best players in the world. Incredible stuff like that. Is the videos like that on YouTube? Um so powerful. If yeah. You could see Kane Nishikuri hitting proper hitting and someone, you know, and, and you've got a guy in the wheelchair that's just going boom, boom, back. Yep. That is a really powerful visual. Shingo has recently just played in a, in a tournament as part of COVID in Japan um, with some of the top Japanese players. Yeah. Um, so I think I'll, I'll see if we can share that, those links. Um, and again, as I said earlier, that's what I love about tennis. It's completely in- inclusive. So, you know, you or I could play doubles with Alfie and yeah. Gordon, either us together against them or one up, one down. Uh, yeah, and it's good fun. And, you know, I, I practice with Alfie quite a lot and I have to be on the top of my game. Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm, not, I'm not, I didn't play to anywhere near your level, but, you know, I have to... <laughs> A bit, and I love it. You know. A bit of a, um, again, it, may, it might be a silly question, and if it is, I apologise. And if it really is, then I apologise and I'll edit it out. But I've always thought, if wheelchair tennis playing doubles at the net, do you not just lob them? Yeah, well, it's a really good, it's not a silly question, because it's an obvious, but the, the, the two-bounce rule which was sort of developed, I guess, by accident, yeah. just seems to sort of level everything out. So if some, the players in doubles will play, there'll be one player trying to come forward, one at the back, um, but they're not as close to the net. Okay. So, the, so the lob has to be pretty good. Yeah. And it, yeah, the, the two bounce just allows that dynamics to work. And the same in singles, you know, people say, well, you could drop shot and lob. Well, because of the second bounce, yeah. players can get to the drop shots and they're not actually that close to the net you know and whoever well when that two bounce rule was in developed I don't think anyone sort of really realized how it would play out and yeah. make the game work yeah. um, uh, 
but it but it does. And I think if, if I was recommending anything to anybody to watch, yeah, wheelchair doubles is fascinating. Yeah. So who gets who gets the lob? So in in able-bodied doubles, we're playing together. Ball goes over my head; it's mine. Yeah, no, it would be the reverse. So the player at the back. Okay. Yes, that's so right. So you'd have a lot of switching. Switching. Yeah, yeah. Um, and the the player at net may may switch and stay at net. Oops. Chances are, if they're defending, they'll actually come. Yeah. Switch diagonally and come back, and that's why it's. I think there's a lot of analysis of wheelchair doubles still to be done okay. because of, of the fascinating movement dynamics, mm. um, way players can you know, move, manoeuvre around the court, create, try and create space. Um, and, yeah. and certainly you see them trying to get to net more often. Yeah. Um, but it, it's not as... Do, you know, net. We'll get Louis Kaya's next next challenge you know yeah i'd love I'd, i have had a couple of conversations with louis i'd love i'd love to try and uh, apply his analysis yeah. to, the, to the wheelchair game yeah. and you know his, his creativity and he's you know he, he's a doubles genius and how do we yeah. take and again it comes back to the earlier conversation earlier thing i said get get louis knowledge of doubles yeah. get him talking to some wheelchair players and and then you come to some, and you know, someone like Louis would probably ch maybe change a few things. Um, but the players would also input into what's possible. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, that'd be a fascinating discussion if we can get it engineered. It would be fascinating. While it's it, it's in my mind, it's been in my mind for ten minutes, Mark. You said something about ten minutes ago. I can't let it go because it's it's. For me, for any young coaches out there, it's a, it's a golden nugget. And it's, again, a, a big belief of mine. You said you you worked for free with a player, you know. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But it's, it, it is something for young coaches. It's, you know, uh, it, out there, it, at, any, at any level, you have to prove yourself. You have to, you have to, you have to prove yourself and you have to learn. And actually... I'm also a big believer that that working for free probably isn't accurate because it's actually working for value and it's working yeah. for value and learning and you know all of those things which which is then put you in a position to become someone who is working at the very top of the game you know someone who is then in in these in, in positions now where you've gone into other sports which I want to get to in a minute and it's and it's opened up a lot of doors for you. I know it's the same with my journey at the start of my journey. That's something I I did with players and still continue to do every time I want to go into a, a a different level. And I think sometimes there's a lot of young coaches out there that think and want everything on the plate for them. So it's something I didn't want to let go. Yeah, and I think I think I, I think I got that from my mum who who continues to volunteer and I I, I still do a lot of voluntary stuff. Yeah. Um, and as you say, I think, yeah, the value I got out of it was my career. I didn't know it at the time. Yeah. But by, and, you know, I, I was a tennis development officer. I was on a salary. So I, Nottingham City Council were brilliant and allowed yeah. me some time. And um, I took a lot of leave to, to um, travel to tournaments with Giants. And I got to travel the world. Um, uh, uh, and at a time when wheelchair tennis was really exciting, there was a, there was a handful of coaches on the tour in those early days, so we were learning off each other. Yeah. Um, and, and it, yeah, and I don't know, you know, talking about other sports, I I worked in Cardiff for a short period of time and worked with Tenny Gray Thompson, who yeah. in the UK people will, will, will know she's now in the House of Lords. Yeah. Um, I, I did some work with her to to transfer for what she was doing in the gym and on the road onto the tennis court because at that time the wheelchair players wheelchair tennis players weren't doing much right. off court okay so i was trying to pick tanny's brains and as a result of that i ended up going to the olympic games as her support worker oh, wow. or support staff awesome. um because she was allowed to take someone to, to atlanta and that was another opportunity that 
opened up that you know money couldn't buy so yeah and I, i'm a big but I, I i do a lot of work still voluntary work for the university of nottingham i, I mentor students yeah. um and i got asked why i do that so well i'm, I'm not sure who learns more yeah yeah you know, me or that's true yeah mentoring people who are in their 20s who are much more savvy around social media or whatever it is yeah. uh, i'm learning off them um so yeah it's always been a something i've believed in and as you said earlier so uh, yeah you, you, it's, you, there's a little bit of selfishness in it because you're going to get something something back yeah um might not be monetary but you you get opportunity yeah and you've touched on other sports there the last thing i want to talk about when I asked you before the show what your current role is, you said inclusive sports development advisor. You didn't say inclusive tennis development advisor. So, so what other sports are you involved in and how does that work? Yeah, variety. I mean, tennis is still probably the, the core of, of, of what I do. Um, but I, I also do quite a lot of work for an organisation called Panathlon in, in the UK that, that does school-based activity for children with special educational needs yep. um, and that's multi-sport um, at, at different levels we, ha we have actually written a tennis version um, and it, it's around tennis activity and engaging disabled people and then and I sort of get contacted do small projects for other organizations so wheel, wheel power which is effectively the British wheelchair sports federation done some um, volunteer training for them and some tutor training. Um, for example, tomorrow I'm I'm on a call with the the Premier League foundations, right? Uh, talking to obviously people with a football background about inclusion. Yeah, great. Um, um, and a, a little project this week around some coaches looking at visually impaired netball. Contacted me and said, you know. Obviously, I don't know much about netball, but they, they've never worked with visually impaired players before, so a little bit of input there. And I, I really enjoy that as well, because that stretches my, mm. my thinking. You know, I, I wouldn't say that tennis is easy, yeah, yeah. but I'm very, familiar, I'm very familiar with tennis activities, tennis drills. Yeah. Um, but I really enjoy trying to work in the other sports where I, I, I'm a little bit out of my comfort zone. Um, and then it, I guess the same principle applies. I've then got to get into a dialogue with the netball coach or the football coach. And so here's my ideas. Yep. And how would you do this, you know, with non-disabled players? Mm -hmm. And normally the, normally the solutions are fairly straightforward. It's just making the connections and perhaps using different equipment. Yep. Um, but... Yeah, and I've yeah really enjoyed the journey of, of of taking the idea and then bringing the ideas back. Mm, absolutely, you, you always learn. Yeah, um, by looking at another sport and go, oh okay, yeah, we could use that on, yeah. you know, within tennis. And I would imagine you were people that and again we go back a long time, Mark, and you are you're you're more inspirational than maybe you realise with everything that you do. And, and I would say anybody working with visually impaired people, you know, in that, in that kind of space within, within sports, have got to have a real special side to them in terms of what they want to give. It's certainly not, I wouldn't imagine it's the easiest thing to, to go into and you, you're giving a lot of time, you, you know, and you're really trying to make a difference. So I would imagine there's some brilliant people that you come across. Oh yeah. Yeah. I think, I think that's the, uh, I, I, I am. I need to publish my book, and uh, the, the the one of the themes in that is that a lot of the dis, the people that have had a massive influence on my life and have been my mentors are disabled people. Um, and I, you know, I mentioned Tanny Gray Thompson earlier, Giant Mystery, who was Britain's former number one that went on to win the first wheelchair doubles event. Um, we're still very close friends. Um, and again, I learned so much of of him, Martin McElhatton, who who's the CEO of Wheelpower. 
Um, yeah, and but I, I, I guess this you know, Tim Reddish is probably the person I credit the most, who's the colleague I spoke about earlier, yeah. uh, um, who's vi visually impaired, and I essentially shared an office with him in my first job, yeah. and just went without realizing it, went on a massive, yeah, informal learning curve. But didn't really see it as a, a learning curve. Um, I'd go out running with him at lunchtime, and I I was his guide, but I didn't really feel like I was his guide. I was just running with him, yeah. Um, and a couple of stories with Tim. We we did an army assault course together, awesome. and I was allegedly his guide. Yeah, yeah. But we got we got to this uh, zip wire. Yeah. And I, I, I was dreading it. But Tim just said to the army instructor, you know, where's the thing I need to grab hold of? And he'd gone. And I'm like, okay, I guess I'm going as well. And, uh, and I said to him after, my reflections afterwards were, maybe I was the eyes, but he was my confidence. Yeah, yeah. Because there were a few things that, if, yeah. if we weren't together, I probably wouldn't have done. Yeah. Um, and... The other story with him, we were we were driving to a school in Nottingham to deliver a tennis session, uh, and two of the class, two of the people in the class had uh, different disabilities. One was using a frame, and and one was visually impaired. And I never forget Tim talking to me on the way, going, "Well, I'll I'll lead the warm up, and you know you can do the tennis activity." And I never forget thinking, "I'm not sure how this is going to work, but." You know, we'll see how the warm up goes. But of course, he leads the warm up, and I'm just like, okay, I get it. You know, and he was playing different. He was playing Port and Starboard with 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 them, and every now and then he'd just say to me, "Mike, are they are they kids where they're supposed to be?" And I'm like, "Yep," and then off he'd go again. Yeah, and um, yeah. So I was very fortunate to have that very early experience in in my early twenties of working with someone like Tim, who, on reflection, he was light years ahead of his time back then. Right. And I was lucky enough to share an office with him and do a lot of work with him, and, and we just didn't think too much of it. Right. Um, and as I say, we experimented with blind tennis ourselves back in the 90s. Yeah, yeah. Um, incredible. And it's going... We can, and, and this actually through the pandemic, this was actually our kind of slogan that we had at the academy. We can talk about what we can't do, but let's actually talk about what we can do. Yeah. And, and, I, and I would imagine in, in the disabled world of sport, you know, that you could get a bunch of people saying, well, we can't run. <laughs> we, yep. can't this. we can't see, we can't hear. I mean, those are some serious, you know, but I can really imagine it being full of gratitude. We can do this, you know, yeah. and, you know, we can hear the ball, you know, we can touch and feel the ball. And what, a, if we get outside of sport, what an incredible way to, you know, live your life. And not, not that people need to have something taken away from them to have that. You'd like to think that everyone could you know, have the have their eyes and have their sight and have their hearing and have all of the, have their legs and feelings and all of these things and still have gratitude. However, unfortunately, it's not always like that in life. You know? No, and I, I think I think like so. I've worked with through what I've done some incredible people. I mean, all all, all the players. I mean, Brad Parks, who in, who started off wheelchair tennis. Yeah. You know, just to talk to him about the journey that he went on. Esther Vergeer, who who Sven coached, who didn't lose for 10 years yeah. uh, and David, yeah, there's, there's so many, da you know, David Hall from Australia. Yeah. There's just so many personalities that, uh, yeah, like you say, ha all have a can do attitude to life. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and that's very much, as I said, uh, my reading is that anybody can play tennis. Yeah. Uh, Nick, Nick Taylor, who is a power chair player from, from the, the US who, who he can't wait there, but he serves by tossing the ball up with his feet. Um, um, you know, I'm a big believer that it, with a, you know, possibly with some modifications and adaptations, but every, everyone can, 
can play and some of the work that I'm doing now with, with profound and multiple learning disabilities is just again really interesting and looking at what sport or physical activity is for is for, is for that group um, and you know anyone can play tennis or we get a rally going the ball is propelled between two people yeah. they push it with or, or strike it with a with with, with something yeah. uh, um, but they're, they're they're having a rally and and, and they're participating and yeah one of the exciting i wasn't directly involved but I, the children's trust had done a, a sensory story for the around wimbledon yeah. For, their young, for their young learners and they've got grass in and rackets and so that the kids could smell Wimbledon you know and uh, that yeah that sort of stuff I think is really 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 interesting. Well I absolutely love it and in, in terms of anyone that wants to hear more because I'm sure everyone will love love hearing all these stories Mark I know that you also set up a podcast during this during this time and have had some fantastic guests on so how can the listeners hear hear more of them and hear more more of these stories yeah that, that's on on my wife's uh, youtube channel so some samantha bullock um so samantha without an h um and there's a physical activity playlist on there uh, and we've had several guests um sven grunfeld being one of them um and then uh, not not all tennis players but all, all people involved in inclusive sport um and, and quite a few so we we've had um jane Nagenga from kenya uh joanna martinez from colombia um veronique marison from mauritius right so we've, we've really been trying to um uh, reach reach the players and and, and and also learn a lot from them and, and give them a platform fantastic and we can't have you on. You don't escape our quick fire round, um, which which is which has become tradition with control the controllables. So so to finish us off, um, all related to wheelchair tennis or visually impaired tennis. Serve or return. Serve. Forehand or backhand. I uh, go for reverse backhand in wheelchair tennis. Yeah. Doubles or singles? Uh, doubles, for sure, in, in both you know, VI tennis and, and, uh, and wheelchair. An easy one for you, one bounce or multiple bounces? Oh, multiple bounces. It's got to be, hasn't it? I've, a I've actually written a, a blog, Dan, that I think the rules of tennis should change to allow up to three bounces. Right. And then we, rather than having one and then having adaptations away, yeah, we have three bounces, and that would embrace walking tennis, yeah. wheelchair tennis, VI tennis, yeah, and beginners, yeah, and feel that they yeah. don't necessarily have to chase it down on one. Um, My worst nightmare is playing Rafael Nadal on a clay court. If he has three bounces, <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> I mean, that's like. Because when he hits his forehand, the third bounce will be up in the stadium. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but, no, yeah. But I, th I think that, that, that my, my, you know, to, to conclude, my, my big passion is, is making the sport as inclusive as possible for as many people as possible. Yeah. Um, and 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 getting as many people to take part in our sport, but also love it, become fans and spectators, um, yeah, and uh, and engage. No, I love the message. Three more quick fires. Oh, sorry, I thought we'd finished. Go on. Which which Grand Slam is your favourite related to wheelchair tennis? Uh, that's a really good question. I have to be careful because I, <laughs> I I work at I, I, I work at Wimbledon. I think um, I'm going to hedge my bet. I think all, all four have got different things. Yeah. Um, and they've brought you know, Australians were the first. They all bring different things to wheelchair tennis. They've all promoted it in different parts of the world. Yeah, had different impacts. When I was travelling for the ITF, and we were able to go around and, and tell people that wheelchair tennis was played at Wimbledon, yeah. it just broke down so many barriers. Yeah, of court surface, of level of play. Yeah. If you could make that comment, it was like, oh, okay, you know, 
yeah. Wimbledon 2016 changed a lot. Yeah, bringing in the singles and I really do. And then yeah. obviously with, with Gordon, Gordon won it, I think, didn't he? He did, yeah, yeah. It's obviously in, in Britain in particular. Um, if you had one rule that you would change, and you can answer this related to able-bodied, and you might have already answered this, wheelchair or visually impaired, what would it be? Yeah, I think that would be what I've just said. It would be to allow more bounces in, in more circumstances. Yeah. To, so that we, we're, a very we're a very inclusive sport. Yeah. Um, but I think if the messaging was out there that you can play and you can play off as up to three bounces, yeah. that would help promote. You know, I think walking tennis has a big future. Yeah. Um, and for people with long-term health conditions or other mobility um, challenges, and I think, it, yeah, that that, and it's in, a sense, in essence, it's not changing anything. Coaches probably do it, yeah, but it's making the the public aware that we're we're a very accessible sport, and you don't have to play with a yellow ball on a big court. Yeah, yeah, you can play on any size court with any ball, yeah, um, and and. And, and bring people in and you know I think COVID has helped us with that we've we were doing a wheelchair tennis session online a few weeks ago and we'd had a, someone contact us and said could they just watch and we're like for sure and after about 20 minutes I noticed that she'd picked up a hairbrush and was joining in uh, and, and that's my we, we just want it to be as inclusive as possible and hopefully she will then go on a journey and end up on a tennis court Awesome. Um, and and last question what's one wish that you have to make tennis more inclusive over the next few years well i think um i, th I think uh, uh wheelchair tennis is pretty well established although there's always more we could we could do I, I think overall would be a a, a greater um sort of acceptance globally of the other impairment types. Um, so blind tennis is in pockets around the world. Yeah. Um, uh, deaf tennis too, learning disability tennis, they, they all exist, but it's sort of continuing the journey with wheelchair tennis, but also bringing all the other elements al along, along with it as well. Great. Well, Mark, you've been an absolute star. You're, you're leading from the front, you know, and that's that comes through talking to you. That comes through. I always love bumping into you wherever we do. Um, it's a long time since I first met you with John Willis. We promise we get John Willis into the podcast. He, yeah. he didn't make it until the very end. But when, when we came to stay back in the days of Players Plus, you know, that was always apparent to me now looking back as well. So a big well done to you. And, and I know that everyone will love listening and anyone that listens and wants to find out more, where can they find out a little bit more? Is there a website that they can go to or anywhere you can direct them? Yeah, probably the, the, the best is my, is, is my Twitter. So it's Mark triple underscore Bullock. Yeah. Um, people can find me on Twitter and Instagram. You've got to be careful writing that in Twitter. Yeah. <laughs> that was Bullock. That was Bullock with a U. Yeah. <laughs> it, but thanks a lot, Mark. That was been brilliant. No, thank you, Dan. Brilliant. Another great episode. A big thank you to Mark Bullock. I would like to apologise to our seasoned followers uh, that this podcast went out on the Thursday I know we promise a Wednesday um, yeah ultimately there's been a few things going on um, but also it's it's real life podcasting and and my daughter during the summer holidays is has been doing a, a sing songwriting course uh, which has meant that she's actually had my iPad this week for the majority of the week. So um, nothing more important than family, but I do apologise that we're 24 hours late with this podcast. Uh, but I promise you that the next one will be out on Saturday, uh, and that's Michael Joyce, who has been the coach to Maria Sharapova, Azarenka, Bouchard, 
to me a babosh currently um, and I promise you it's not a one to miss uh, I could have talked for hours to Michael and I, he energised me massively and, and, I, and I learned a lot about professional tennis coaching at that end and, and, I, and I'm sure you guys will as well so make sure you don't miss that um, if you haven't subscribed, then just press subscribe. It's something I know that I do with all of my favourite podcasts. It just means that you don't miss you don't miss the podcasts coming in. And as the podcasts go, we'll probably advertise them a little bit less and less. And so just we've been advertising a lot to make sure people are picking them up right now. But if you press the subscribe button, that makes a big difference. And, and please keep sharing, please keep sharing and following and, and getting these great guests out there. Uh, a big thank you to you all and hope everyone's having a good week. Uh, my name is Dan Kiernan, my co-host is John McGann and we are Control the Controllables.